Back at the beginning of March, Henson hosted Nine Marks Northwest Conference with special speakers Mike McKinley, Michael Lawrence, Todd Miles, and Thomas Terry. We thought it would be helpful to have on this podcast their talks. Uh, We do not include the Q&A, which was one of the fun parts of being at the conference. But uh, for those of you who missed a talk or missed the conference or just wanted to re-listen to the talks, we thought this would be a good place to listen to them. So the next eight episodes that you'll see on DHP will be the Nine Marks Northwest Conferences. The the following talks will not have my little intro at the beginning. And then we are going to be picking up and releasing episodes, trying to keep the once a week schedule, but know that sometimes there are delays. So thank you for understanding. Hope you enjoy these Nine Marks Northwest talks on the topic of conversion. It is great to be able to welcome all of you back. Uh, you know, we, we last did this workshop two years ago, right before the pandemic hit. Uh, it was great to have Mike McKinley here, uh, along with Greg Gilbert, two years ago, looking at evangelism. Of course, we weren't able to have it last year, so it is just sweet to be uh, close, oh, so close, to back to normal. Uh, so we're, we're, we're just thrilled to see you. Uh, my name is Michael Lawrence. I'm the lead pastor here, and we are here to talk about conversion. Uh, We live in an age that cannot make up its mind. On the one hand, we as a culture are absolutely committed, not just to the desirability, not, not just to the possibility, but to the necessity of change. So long as that change is material, so, so not only are we constantly improving ourselves through, through smartwatches, right, and diets and exercise. I got my Fitbit on, you know, I'm tracking my steps. I've got my glucose monitor on. I'm tracking my blood sugar, right? We're, we're constantly doing this. We're, we're, we're optimizing everything from our, from our sleep to our steps. Not only are we doing all of that, we as a culture seem committed now to even changing what was once thought unchangeable our gender. So, so we're, we're a culture that believes in the possibility, even the necessity of change. But, but on the other hand, we are also, as a culture, absolutely committed, not just to the undesirability, not, not just to the impossibility, but actually to the immorality of change. So long as that change in view is understood to be internal, psychological, mental. We're told that we're born that way, especially if we're talking about sexual orientation or gender orientation. We're told that the healthy person is the person who's basically come to accept themselves as they are. And to attempt to change those things is to do violence to the person. And in some places in our country, it is illegal to even have a conversation about trying to change some of those internal things. Now, there are exceptions to, to what I've just laid out. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not allowed to change our race. Though it's hard to understand, given everything else, 
that our culture says, it's hard to understand why, why that's off limits. But, but the point remains, our culture is deeply conflicted about the idea of change, of conversion. Now, I don't think that the explanation is all that hard to find. At the core of our modern culture's understanding of itself is a commitment to what many sociologists and and here lately Carl Truman have called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. That's, That's just the idea that the most essential and inviolable part of you, the thing that that is most important, the thing that actually deserves the protection of law and civil rights, that thing is your own personal sense of yourself. And that the highest expression of liberty, of freedom, is your ability to express that sense of self, whatever it might be, in any way you happen to see fit even if that means changing your body so you don't have to change your mind. Now, it's into that context, this very conflicted cultural context as we think about change and conversion. It's into that context that Christianity comes with a message that is surprisingly sympathetic to the modern conundrum, this sense of change being simultaneously necessary and impossible. We we kind of agree with that. Only Christianity understands the problem, kind of the polarity of the problem to be reversed, right? The message of Christianity is that if we would be right with God, change must happen on the inside. The, The very place where our culture says, no, you can't touch that. We must become new creatures if we would be right with God. But Christianity also says on the outside, in terms of what we can actually do, we are utterly incapable of making that change happen. We can change our bodies, but we cannot reshape our souls. Our necessity to be changed on the inside is is stymied by our utter inability. So how can the change that we so desperately need, if we were to be right with God, how can it happen? Well, the message of Scripture is that it can happen only if God himself does it. This is the theology of conversion And as we talk about the theology of conversion and and what it means for the life of the church tonight and tomorrow, we, we, we need to start right here with the necessity of regeneration, of being made new. And and what I what I want you to understand is, and this is kind of just the basic idea of the talk, we need to be made new, not nice. We need to be made new, not nice. Turn, turn with me. I mean, the classic place to think about this is John chapter 3. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 3. I just want to read for you verses 1 to 10. John chapter 3, 
verses 1 to 10. This is a story that many of you will be very familiar with. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with them. Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? replied Jesus. We'll start there. Nicodemus wants to know how to get into the kingdom of God. But Jesus basically says, well, you, you, you got to do this thing that's impossible. You, you've got to be born again. And, and, and when Nicodemus hears that, he, he can't believe it. He, his, his response there in, in, verse, in, verse, uh, in verse 4, if I can paraphrase it, is, Jesus, that's crazy. That's crazy talk, Jesus. We can't do that. We can't crawl back into our mother's womb and be born again. And, and behind that is this sense you know, on, on Nicodemus's part that God wouldn't require something from us that we can't do. You're, you're talking crazy, Jesus. This is not the way it works. Fundamentally, Nicodemus assumes that he is able to do whatever he needs to do in order to be right with God. Nicodemus assumes that God is the kind of God that will be pleased with his best efforts, sort of like your granddad. And Nicodemus assumes that the point of religion is to help him become that better person, that person that he needs to be, but kind of wouldn't be on his own, but, but religion will help me get there so that God will accept me. As far as Nicodemus is concerned, it's, it's nice people who get into heaven. It's good people who get into heaven, who try hard, do the best that they can, and God's going to be pleased with them. I think the appeal of nice is just as strong today as it was in Nicodemus's day. When, when I was a, a young college student, I became com deeply convicted that I was not the kind of person that I was supposed to be. I was deeply convicted, I'm gonna talk about this more tomorrow, but I was deeply convicted that because I wasn't the kind of person that I should be, that God wouldn't accept me. And so I did what anybody who's working off a of theology of nice will do, I started trying to cut a deal with God. God, I'll quit drinking. God, I'll quit messing around with my girlfriend. God, I'll read my Bible more if you just won't send me to hell. What do you think, God? You see what's going on there? I can do what I need to do. God will be pleased with my efforts. Religion will help. 
There are lots of different kinds of nice out there in our culture, ideas of what it means to be good enough to, to please God. There's the live and let live nice. There's the spiritual but not religious nice. There's the socially conscious nice. But I think the most dangerous for our churches is the religious version of nice. God wants me to be good. I'm able to be good. Religion will help. You know, I bet none of your churches teach that explicitly. But how many times have I talked, especially to older church members, about what their hope for heaven is? And the answer I get back, people that have spent their whole lives in churches just like this one, the answer I get back is, is some version or another of, well, I, I think I've been good enough. I hope I've been good enough. Not, per, not perfect, of course. Like, God, God wouldn't expect anybody to be perfect. But good enough. And if that's what so many in the older generation have modeled and believed inside of our churches, is it any wonder that younger generations have dispensed with religion altogether? If the point is simply to be a better person today than I was yesterday, then why do I need religion at all? I can be nice without Jesus. Maybe I just need to become a, a truer, a, a more authentic expression of my inner self. The appeal of nice, the attraction of a theology of nice is strong. It cleans us up pretty well on the outside. It plays to our vanity, to our pride. It plays to our secret desire that I think all of us have to commend ourselves to God and to commend ourselves to each other. I, I think the most insidious thing about it, though, is ultimately it dispenses with my need to justify myself at all. Since especially in our cultural context, the self needs no justification. What it needs is expression. But in fact, it is not what we need. What we need is to be made new. Jesus says this over and over again in our passage. You, you see that in verse 3, Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he says it again in verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then he says it again in verse 7. Don't be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. According to Jesus, if we would be right with God, we don't need to just improve ourselves. Or, or express ourselves more authentically. What we need is a complete restart. We need to be made new, born again, to use Jesus' language. In, in fact, the Bible uses actually several different words to describe this, this doctrine of regeneration, what Jesus is talking about here. It, it uses the language of regeneration, be, being born again, with, with an emphasis that, that, that being born again 
Well, it doesn't come from us. It, it comes from God. God is the source of that new life. You see that uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, where, where Peter says in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he, he has given us the new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, another image that the New Testament uses to talk about this is the idea of recreation, which means being made anew as part of that eschatological end-time reality, as if the future is, is, is coming into our world right now in our lives and in our experience. This is what Paul is referring to in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse, verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Another image that the New Testament uses to describe this is the image of transformation which means being given a, a new nature. Uh, we, we see this in, in Colossians um, chapter 3, verse, verse 10. I'll start in verse 9. Paul says, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. There's that language of transformation, being given a new nature. So the New Testament uses several different words to describe what must happen. But one of the words that the Bible never uses to describe what Jesus is talking about is one of my favorite words, because I'm a church historian by training, and that's the word reformation. To reform something is to take something that's, you know, basically okay, but but to mend it, because it's, it's like broken in one spot. It's, it's to take something that's, that's you know, basically okay, but, but to correct it a bit, because it's gone a bit wayward. The biblical language, the change that Jesus talks about in John chapter 3, goes so much deeper than the idea of reform. It goes beyond this idea of fixing us up to a radical and complete change of our very nature. According to the scripture, God made us to worship him, to love him, to find in him our deepest satisfaction. That was our nature as he originally created it. But when our first parents decided to rebel against God, they didn't just break a rule. They corrupted their very nature. Theologians call this original sin, and we've all inherited it. Created with a, a nature to love God, we now actually have a nature that is kind of bent in on itself. We, we now tend away from loving God and toward loving ourselves. From birth, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead in our sins. We walk in the passions of our flesh. From birth, we are in death. From birth, we are like dead men walking. Which is why nice doesn't work. We need to be made new. 
And what that means is that God must do it. God must do it because we cannot. Flipping back to to John chapter 3, Jesus says in verse 8, the wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. I think it's really important for us to realize that conversion is not the result of evangelism. I bet you thought that's, that's what evangelism was for. Evangelism, the point of evangelism is to convert people, and when people are converted, it's a result of evangelism. No. No, nowhere does the Bible say that conversion is the result of evangelism. Conversion is the result of the sovereign work of God, the Holy Spirit. Jesus compares the work of the Spirit of God with the wind. You know, no no one's in control of the wind. It, like, goes where it wants. And it blows when it wants. So Jesus says it is with the Spirit. If anyone would be born again, God himself must take the initiative. God himself must do the work. And that's exactly what he's done. He did it first by sending his son to accomplish the work of redemption on the cross. That's, that's, that's the gospel. And then he, he furthers that work by sending the spirit who takes all the benefits of what Christ has done and, and applies it to our lives. I'm not going to talk about that anymore because that is Mike's talk. And he's going to give that talk in just a few minutes. Hundreds of years before Jesus had this conversation with Nicodemus, the prophet Ezekiel prophesied that this is what God would do for his rebellious and sinful people. In Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel piles up the images describing this this radical change that God is going to accomplish. He would would bring them back from exile. He He would cleanse them from impurity. But most importantly, says Ezekiel, he would change their nature. And in changing their nature, he would reconcile them to himself. Here's what Ezekiel says in chapter 36, beginning in verse 26. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. If we would be right with God, If we would be God's people, we must be made new. And God alone can do that. The doctrine of regeneration, which stands at the headwaters of our whole conversation about conversion, this doctrine matters for the life of the Christian. It means that a Christian is not someone who prayed a prayer but rather someone whose heart has been transformed by God's grace. And therefore, that's going to totally change the way we think about assurance. We're going to talk about that later in one of the later talks. It it means that, that this is a person who's characterized by repentance and faith. Not that they did that once like 20 years ago. 
but characterized by repentance and faith. Someone, someone whose, whose life is, 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 is redolent, smelly of Christ and displays the fruits of the Spirit. You see, when someone has been made new, it is evident in their lives. A couple weeks ago, a dear friend of mine, a member of our church, died. It was just six years ago that we baptized her and her husband. Paul and Thana came to us with lives that were really broken, really messed up, lives that had been racked by, by addiction and other kinds of dysfunction. They showed up, and they were sitting right, right about there. First Thana, and then she brought Paul. And they're listening to the preaching, and they're watching the people around them. They're getting to know people. And they found what they heard from this pulpit and what they saw in the lives of the people around them. They found it compelling. And they each repented and put their faith in Christ, and we had the joy of baptizing them. Paul and Dan are older. They brought a lot of baggage with them, a lot of brokenness. Things didn't change quickly. There's a, you know, life is messy. It doesn't change necessarily really fast. But change, it did. When Thana died two weeks ago, I was there right at, right, just moments after she had died. I stood there in the room, her living room, with her husband, Paul, and her sister, Joy, who'd flown up from Florida to help out in the final days. And we talked. We laughed a little bit. And we cried. The next morning, I got this text from Thana's sister, Joy, who I'm not sure she's a believer. Here's what she said. Good morning. This is Joy, Dana's sister. I wanted the opportunity to thank you. I witnessed a tremendous transformation in Dana, not just when she was sick, but for the last five years. From someone that knew her well, that was no small task. Believe me, I tried. She did not open up easily, but you found the key. So thank you and your wife and your church for all that you did. I hope our paths cross again. I replied to her. It was a privilege and a joy to have a front row seat at the transformation Jesus Christ accomplished in her life. I wanted Joy to know I didn't find the key. This church didn't change her. Jesus changed her. And it was evident for all to see. The doctrine of regeneration matters for the Christian life. But the doctrine of regeneration also matters for the corporate life of the church. You know, the result of regeneration isn't just 
a bunch of Lone Ranger Christians going around showing how different they are. No, the Spirit saves us into a people, into a community living under God's rule. All of those yous that I read in Ezekiel 36, they're all plural, not singular. God's rule inscribed on my heart, given to me in this new nature, teaches me about love of neighbor. It teaches me about my mutual responsibility for fellow Christians, for, the, for their, their spiritual good. You see, you see, a local church is not a, a random collection of spiritual consumers on any given Sunday who've just so, shown up to kind of the, the religious mall to get their goods and services for the week. No, it's a, it's a community of new creatures whose lives and loves commend the truth of the gospel together, or at least it should be. And so there are things that we should do as a local church that you're going to hear us talk about again and again as a result of the doctrine of conversion. It's why we should pay attention to membership. Now, I want to be really clear. We do not want regenerate attendance. In fact, I want as many non-regenerate people here every Sunday morning as possible. Now, I'm not talking about regenerate attendance, but I do want regenerate church membership because it's the members who together are officially speaking for Jesus in this world and who are showing the world, this is why the gospel is true. This is what Jesus has to say. So we want to pay attention to membership. We, we want to, I think as pastors and elders, we want to take the time as people come into our church to sit down, conduct a membership interview, get to, get to know them a little bit. Now, in a membership interview, I'm not, I'm not trying to determine like how good somebody is. I don't care how good they are. I'm looking for evidence of the new birth. I'm, I'm looking for evidence that here's somebody who, they're not what they want to be, but they're no longer what they were. They are something new now, and they can see it, and others can see it because of the grace of God. I think it's why in our churches, we want to be celebrating examples of repentance, not morality. You know, when members have a chance to hear one another's testimonies in public, what gets put in that testimony? Is it all the great things you're doing for God now? Or is it a testimony of the great change that God has accomplished in your life? I once was this, but by the grace of God, I am now this. We, we want churches where it's normal for people to confess sin to one another and receive forgiveness. We want, we want churches where, where the model of discipleship shifts from self-righteousness to Christ-likeness. That's why we need to practice church discipline. The goal of corrective church discipline is not to exclude bad people. Boy, if we're going to exclude bad people, we'd have to, like, exclude everybody, right? No, nobody should be excluded merely for, for sinning. It's Christian sin. News alert. Christian sin. No, church discipline happens when someone who professes to be a follower of Christ is confronted with their sin, and they refuse to repent. Church discipline doesn't address sin. It addresses unrepentant sin. 
And why does it do that? Because it is not the nature of somebody who's been made new to insist on staying in their sin. You know, people who've been made new, they don't necessarily see all their sin. We, we need brothers and sisters to, to point out stuff in this that we don't see. And when it is pointed out to us, somebody who's been made new says, thank you, brother. Thank you for loving me enough to help me see my sin better so that I can repent of it and follow Christ. It's why we want to keep baptism and church membership and the Lord's Supper connected. They're not like three separate things that you can mix and match, pick and choose. No, actually, they are three different angles on the same reality, the reality of regeneration. Baptism initiating and a sign of that new birth, the Lord's Supper, the ongoing continual reminder that we've been made new in Christ, membership, our church's public affirmation that this is a new creature. We've seen the evidence. You see, the criteria for all three are the same. Not nice, but repentance and faith. If we're going to commend the possibility of real change in a world that is deeply confused about the possibility of change and, and deeply confused about even what needs to be changed, brothers and sisters, we need to take seriously the doctrine of regeneration. We need to give ourselves to the work of being communities of new creatures. We must be made new if we would be right with God. And through the Spirit, by the gospel, we are. Let me pray for us. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that that we would take seriously the, the message of the gospel that says we must be made new, and yet we cannot do that ourselves. I, I pray that you would help us to understand better how to, to, to not only uh, take that seriously in our own lives, but, but, but how to become communities that take that seriously, that, that demonstrate it joyfully, that display the new creation clearly. We, we pray that not for our own sake, but for the sake of a watching world, that they would be able to look at your people and see that indeed there is hope for change, the change that you alone can bring. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.